Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm, of course, very excited because today is World War II Day. We've got with us today Gareth Davis, who is a former soldier, battlefield guide and a student of 20th century warfare. Hi, Gareth. Hi, Alina. How are you? I'm good. I'm good because we're going to talk about tanks, Alina. And um, as you know, (laughs) I do occasionally say that a day without a tank is a day wasted. Do you know what you did? You not? I swear you just posted that on Twitter like literally five minutes ago. Yeah, it's a strong possibility that I did. Ah, uh, tanks. Do you know what? I'm not really good with tanks, so you. I, I know. I know a bit. I know enough. So you're going to have to teach me about this kind of stuff. Are you ready? Yeah. No, I'm very happy to. And 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 of course, it's probably worth saying here. Although I bang on about tanks, um, it's not just the tanks that are, that are important. There's some other bits that go with it, and we might bring that out as we we chat about. Um, Kursk in the next 45 minutes. Oh, yes. Yes. We've got some really interesting stuff to talk about. Okay. So how about which side, the Germans or the Soviets, uh, which side had uh, had the best tank? Oh, that's easy. But before anybody expects me to say a certain answer, <laughs> um, the side that had the best tank were the Soviets. And the tank that they had, which was the best, was, of course, the Churchill tank. Um, because they had some British Churchill tanks. They had some uh, Lees or Grants. I can never remember which one's which. Um, and they also had the Valentine tank. It's probably worth just, just, can I mention the Valentine very quickly, please? Of course you can mention the Valentine. Go for it. I mean, the, Val- the, Valentine, the Valentine has its fan club out there. And, and I'm a bit harsh on the Valentine, which is a bit unfair, because the Valentine is, is, is quite interesting, because it's sort of halfway house between a, it's a fast infantry tank. It's quite well protected, so it can can sort of sort of go toe to toe with um, defenders. But it's also quite fast. I mean, fifteen miles an hour. These things are relative, so it's it could you could argue it's a fast infantry tank or a slightly well armoured cruiser. Um, but because it's neither one nor t'other, and it's a little small um, and, and goes out of service, it sort of gets overlooked. But but people who've ever ever listened to me or, or read any of my stuff online know that I'm a massive Churchill tank fan. Um, I predominantly do that at the expense of Sherman's because my master's thesis was basically Churchill's brilliant, Sherman's rubbish. Um, It's a little more nuanced than that. Um, But um, yeah, so the Soviets had the best tank, which was the Churchill. But but I think think the real answer to your question is um, the Soviets again. And as you said, it begins with a T-34, which um, is essentially using tractor technology. I know most vehicles back in the, the 40s use tractor technology, but it is rough and ready. But it is able to be kept going by not a peasant from the Russian steppe, because they're not all Soviet army uh, soldiers are, are, are peasants from the Russian steppe, but it can be kept going pretty easily. Um, it doesn't need complicated small spare parts. And, and, and that bit of the story will, will come out a bit later on, I think. Okay, can I just throw a tank name in here? Yeah. Why Why didn't you not say the Tiger? Because apparently that is supposed to be one of the top-notch tanks. See, this is where the whole, I, I mean, you know as well as I do, that the, the whole concept of um, a tank being better, one tank being better than the other is, is a sort of slightly trite um, thing to be discussing. And especially, if, you know, if one goes down a top Trump's route, the Tiger might well win because it's got a big gun, an 88 millimeter, whereas the um, T-34 has a, has a smaller one, 76, is it? I can never remember. Um, the Panther, 
is quite a good tank. But again, it's not quite as well-armoured as a Tiger. It doesn't have as big a gun as a Tiger. So the Tiger, in top Trump style, is, 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 is king of the pack. But it's not just about those headline numbers. It's about how you use it and how you train people to use it and how many you've got and how many spare parts you've got and how you integrate it with everything else. And so that's why I would say that the T-34 wins hands down, in my humble opinion, over a Tiger, apart from the fact that it can't destroy a Tiger head on, uh, which some might say that's a, a, a fairly major uh, failing on the T-34's behalf. Well, possibly, but it's not designed to destroy a Tiger um, uh, on the front arc. It can go around the sides or around the back. So, um, yeah, in headline figures, Tigers are awesome. But in reality, it's nowhere near as good as that. I'm going to make a really, really silly comment right now. And I cannot believe it has taken me this long to clock this. I've just realised the German tanks are named after animals. Well, yes, but not all of them. So so before you beat yourself up for not having realised it, most of the German tanks um, throughout the war, not just at, at Kursk, are, are Panzer 3s and 4s. Um, Panzer 4s at, at Kursk and 43. They don't have names. So um, it's only the Panzer V, which becomes the Panzer, the Panzer VI, the Tiger. Um, and then you get those funny things coming in, like the, 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 well, the elephant. And again, we might talk about the elephant later or the Ferdinand. And then there's a huge um, support gun based on a, a Panzer IV, the Brum Bear, which again, I think, it's, is that a bear? I'm assuming it is. Maybe it's not. Uh, maybe I got that completely wrong. Um, so they're not all. So I think you're being a bit harsh on yourself, Alina. They're not all um, um, named after big cats. And predominantly, it's just the, the, the tiger and the panther. I saw it actually starts in Barbarossa, doesn't it? I think it probably does. I mean, it probably starts somewhere in, I don't know, nine, well, I should ask you. You're, you're, you're Polish, so you understand the relationship between Germany and Russia, Soviet Union both ways to the detriment of Poland, one could argue, you understand it much better than I do. And, and all manner of stuff happens from well, arguably 1914 or before 14 all the way into to, to 1940. But um, that's, that's not the bit I want to focus on. I think Barbarossa is the place to start. And I think it's fair to say that certainly initially, Barbarossa, what a cracking success for the, for the Germans. How far do they advance? Well, I think I've went out, how many thousand, how, how far is it from them? Um, Moscow to um, from Berlin to Moscow. Sorry, from from <laughs> Berlin mad. to Moscow. Gosh, I don't know. It, it's a it's a long distance. It's a very long distance. Yeah, abs- ab- absolutely. And so you know, it it they they I know they didn't quite get to Moscow, but but the initial advances in in um, Barbarossa um, in June forty one up to the ninth of July, they they charge through from you know that line of of Königsberg, Brest and and down all the way up to well they're into Belarusia they're, they're they're on the sort of they're into Ukraine uh in the in the north they've certainly got through Lithuania and Latvia and they're on the door of um Estonia which they then get in in the September and so by September where are they up to Bryansk, Smolensk, Novogor- Novgorod in the north and almost um uh, and they almost got down to Kharkov in the south, uh, and they do take Kharkov in December. So, so in territorial terms, huge gains, and I think that gives the, the Germans um, a, a massive boost. They are able to conduct blitzkrieg, lightning war. They use the term, but these combined arms groupings, tanks, armored personnel carriers, the half tracks, uh, lorries. Yes, a lot of horse-borne, horse-drawn transport as well, and the and the. Luftwaffe helping them combine all this together for these these quick and deep strikes, and I suppose Barbarossa is an example of of tactical level at the lower level, Blitzkrieg being successful at the operational level, the sort of theatre level, it's being successful, and it's almost strategically successful. Apart from the fact it doesn't take Moscow, and then it gets a bit off course uh, later. So, so yeah, um, I think Barbarossa is the place to start, and and it gave the Germans. Uh, a huge amount of experience of fighting over the, the, the in, in the Soviet Union, 
and it gave them an understanding of the, the Soviet soldier, um, perhaps a misunderstanding of both of those. So, yes, I, I would absolutely start with Barbarossa. Well, a bit like that myth where you can smell a, a Russian soldier from a mile away. Yeah, I mean, well, yes. I mean, I, I, I've served with the old Russian soldier. Actually, I've served with the Ukrainian soldiers, and, and, and the Ukrainians had a, had a much more distinctive smell um, of soap, cold tar soap, not, not of dirtiness, of cleanliness. Um, but the Russian officer I worked with, he, he smelt of um, cheap cologne, um, but he was very well connected, and I don't want to be rude about him because he's probably still got people out spying on me. Um, Albert. <clears throat> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Okay, so uh, Stalingrad, Germans are now in Soviet Russia. Let's just, 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 I mean, I think, may I just cover Stalingrad? Not, I mean, when, when do they get to, to Stalingrad? I can never remember. It, it, it's sort of in, in, in 42, isn't it? And they push on towards the, the end of 42. And it, you know, Stalingrad does not work for them. And um, I, I think this is an interesting point to look at is perhaps, and I may be stretching an analogy here far too far, but um, let's look back to 1916, if we can, just briefly, to the Somme. And the German tactic there is to never give up any ground. And if they do have to, if they do lose any ground, they will immediately counterattack. Um, by 1917, certainly towards the end of 1917, um, the Germans have changed their tactics. They are prepared to cede some ground to then reconfigure and counterattack again. Um, I think at Stalingrad, they make the mistake of not giving ground. And it's almost as if they've gone back to that original tactic of 1917, not their modified tactic of 1917. I mean, there are lots of other reasons why that that Stalingrad fails. Um, But just because tactics and the development of tactics fascinates me, I just thought it was worth uh, bringing that in, if I may. Okay, um, Barbarossa to Stalingrad, um, and then from Stalingrad, I think the logical way is is Kursk, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, there's there's other campaigns, and 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 <clears throat> they've got various names. They're there. So Stalingrad, um, the Soviets pushed the, the the Germans out of it. Um, you've got the various um, battles for for Kharkov, um, and I can't remember who takes it first and who who takes it second. The the Germans end up. Um, taking it again in um, March 1943, I think it is. And, and so the line is moving. The, the northern half of the line, yeah, there's some, some, there were some um, <clears throat> Soviet um, offensives in 41-42, um, which sort of took a bit up in the north um, uh, on the Volga. Um, and, um, and then Stalingrad, they, they take a lot of ground there and then Kharkov is taken by the Germans. So it, it's, it's by about um, March 1943 that the front line has stabilised and created this salient. And I you know, often describing Ypres is a salient and, and the kids I take on tour often ask, what's a, a salient? Well, it's a bit of your territory that sticks out into the enemy's territory. And as a result you're sort of surrounded on, how can you be surrounded on your three sides? You know exactly what I mean. You, you've got an enemy in front of you and an enemy to either side of you. And you are vulnerable if you're in a salient um, for a number of reasons. One, um, you have to have be looking front, left and right. Second, it's not a straight line from A to B. So from Oral down to, to Bolgorod, um, if you drew a straight line there, that the Soviets would have had um, a significantly shorter line, which therefore would have needed uh, fewer troops to defend. And so in many ways, the, the, the Soviets perhaps would have liked to have had a straight line. It also is a, is a sort of almost red rag to a bull for an, a force on the offensive. Um, seeing a salient, <clears throat> I think the Germans saw the opportunity for that at, at, at Ypres. Um, and it's because of this salient and the opportunity, the opportunity to, to break into it from either side on the flanks and then go and create merry hell, killing um, Soviets. And that essentially was, was the aim. Destruction um, gives the, 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 the Germans the, the idea for um, the operation, which becomes known as Citadel. So I'm really interested in this because I want to know more about the state of the German and Soviet army by this point, because... <clears throat> 
the Germans have been fighting, the Soviets have been fighting. It's been a non-stop battle for what we're coming up to nearly two, two years now at this point, aren't we? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I mean, there, there's stuff going on in North Africa, obviously, but that is not the main fight at this stage. Um, it, 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 it's predominantly going on in the East. Yes, OK, North Africa, um, the, the Germans do win um, at, at Kasserine originally, but but by um, April, um, by February, I think it is, they, they win at Mareth in Tunisia, and by April, the the, the, the campaign in North Africa is is in its final flushes. And so um, there's not much going on down there. There's there, there's nothing happening in Italy yet, but we'll come to that in a minute. Um, so the main activity is in the east. And so therefore the Germans are drawing, and the Soviets, their experience from the east into their future plans. And I think that's where um, the Germans get it wrong and the Soviets get it right. Um, you've got... Um, an element of Western arrogance coming in on the German side. Now, the British are pretty good at this. Um, we did it at Gallipoli. Uh, we did it in the First World War. We did it in Palestine in the First World War, fighting against Johnny Turk. We thought it would be um, easy to defeat the peasant armies of, of the Ottomans then. And I think even though they had suffered at the end around Moscow and at Stalingrad, the Germans still felt that um, they were better than the Soviets. The soldiers were better and brighter. Their kit was better. Well, and in certain ways, I think that's true, Alina. But, you know, the Tiger tank is a more sophisticated tank than a T-34, as is the Panther. But sophisticated doesn't always mean better um, because you can repair a T-34, less sophisticated tank, more easily using um, a hammer uh, and and um, whatever a blacksmith has available, I can't stretch it slightly more easily than you can um, highly specialised spare parts needed for um, a, a tiger or a panther. So there was this view, I think, by the Germans that the Soviets were easier to beat than perhaps they were. I think the Germans also had a, an, an overextended view of the, the Luftwaffe's ability. But again, this is based on certain amount of experience, a certain amount of knowledge here. They have had some successes and there are elements of, of truth involved. Um, I think the Russian Soviets, sorry, um, they've thought about it. They know what they're up against. Um, and um, they've in the past in their offensives got it wrong, the Soviets, in terms of estimating what the German defences were or the German opposition was for the offensive. Heading into the summer of 43, the Soviets have got a much better idea of what they are facing, the other side of the line, uh, both in the, the Kursk salient and to the north, because the Soviets are planning an attack of their own. Because there's actually another salient further north, um, which the Germans own. And so um, that is the state of play, I think is the best way of putting it. Germans, lots of experience, some good kit, Decent amount of people-ish, um, but a level of confidence and planning challenges because of uh, the way in which the, the Nazi regime is, is set up. Soviets, uh, significantly more people, uh, lots, lots and lots of people who may not be high quality, but but excuse the old um, trite saying, but quantity has a quality all of its own. Um, it too, the Soviets also have their slightly convoluted planning um, system because um, whether you're a Nazi dictatorship or a, a communist dictatorship, you, you seem to have levels of control that, that that don't allow too much free thinking. But the Soviets have got it right, I would say, uh, coming up to um, Citadel and Kursk. I mean, I can see the arrogance from the German army. I, I could totally understand that. The confidence of what they did in the invasion of Poland, the confidence when they invaded um, Soviet Russia. It's completely and utterly understandable yeah i mean I, I i think there's a couple of other things that that, that play in um i mean look, you know what what were the germans trying to achieve just to sort of that first of all they as i said and hinted that they they wanted to to kill um soldiers and tanks in the curse salient um and this was designed to prevent the soviets going on the offensive um 
they'd never be able to completely annihilate the Soviets on a numbers, you know, one for one basis, I don't think, because the Soviets had many more men to call, call on. They also wanted a whole load of prisoners of war because they needed labor in Germany. And so let's take some Soviets and, and some, you know, some Russians, bung them back in Germany as slave labor. That releases Germans to go be soldiers. And as I said, they want to sort of shorten their line as well. So they have fewer people and regain the initiative. Um, I think the, the, the Soviets have a number of things playing to their advantage, which the Germans don't have. They have, um, well, I think they're pretty certain that national survival isn't at stake anymore. I think after the failure of Barbarossa and then the failure of, <clears throat> of Stalingrad, I think the Soviets are fairly confident and rightly so that, that the Soviet state is going to continue pretty much um, as it was. Well, as you know, the answer is it actually expands uh, after the war. So, so that they, they, they have a confidence um, that comes from that. And I think it's a fair confidence. They, they also know what the, the, the Germans are planning to do. Um, because it's so obvious, you know, you, you don't want to say it's there, that of course the Germans are going to attack it. Um, but they also have um, a decent amount of intelligence, the Soviets. Um, they've got lots of people and equipment. And yes, we're, the, the Allies are winning in, in, in North Africa. So they've got a plan, a counter plan, although it's their own plan, to, to first resist the, any German attack, which they know is going to happen, and then go on the offensive. So... Um, I mean, both sides' plans make some sense. I mean, the German plan isn't daft. Um, it's understandable. But the more and more you look at exactly the, so uh, the Soviet defences in detail, the, 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 the more you realise that this is a tough nut to crack, if you pardon the, the, the trite expression. Air power. I think I want to know a little bit more about this because we all know that Luftwaffe is very, very well organised. Nobody can doubt that. But do they end up joining the fight? Yeah, they do. They do. Um, it's interesting. I think that the, the Germans are, they don't have any superiority across the front. Um, but what they are able to do in a way that um, perhaps um, hasn't been done before is they're able to uh, sorry has been done before they, they're able to concentrate their air power and so um the fact that they're lacking it initially isn't so much of a problem for them they can move it around i, I think the one area where the the german western arrogance i, I called it earlier is um fair is their view of the Luftwaffe, of the um, soviet air force the, the soviet air force is not in a good state um their equipment arguably isn't as good and um in numbers terms it doesn't quite work out in their favor so i think i think that's the one area where the germans are at an advantage can we press pause there because i've just got to find one note i wrote lena and i can't find so alex or edit i've just pressed the record button so um so the question was uh, does the luftwaffe join in the fight yeah um in fact the air force is on both sides join the fight and i suppose on paper the germans are right in their assessment of the, the soviet air force that the, the, the germans can do a bit better um but in the end i think we end up with two air arms air forces uh, fighting almost on an equal uh, basis uh, the, the soviets um, gain the initiative from the air right from the start and they they, they begin with an attack from the air against german uh, air installations but um it, it, it doesn't actually achieve anywhere near as much as they'd intended, partly because the, 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 they don't get to the right places. Um, and, and in fact, it, it takes planes away from doing other tasks, so perhaps hinders them a little bit. Um, and um, the retaliation by the Germans also um, has a significant impact on the, the, the Soviet Air Force. Um, and so for the rest of the day, in the first day of the, the battle, the, the Air Force... Uh, the Luftwaffe uh, have the upper hand. And, and what are the Luftwaffe doing? Well, they're um, providing air superiority, i.e. shooting down um, Soviet um, uh, fighters. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to keep any reinforcements, um, Soviet reinforcements away from the battlefield. Um, and theoretically, their third um, role is to provide that close air support. But they do quite a bit of that. 
um, stickers are involved, and um, and they've developed a system where they use um, guns mounted on some of their aircraft as as tank busters. Um, and the Germans have developed this over a bit of time, and it works quite well. But in the end, um, I think the air battle is on an equal footing, but the Soviets have to fly almost twice as many sorties as the Germans to achieve um, parity, if not a slight dominance um, by the Soviets. I, I, that's, that's my limit of the air, sorry. <laughs> you prefer being on the ground rather than up in the air? Well, yeah, and, and, and that's, that's, that, you know, I, I, I will admit fully to, the, to, to, to everybody listening in that, that air forces in general across and air, air support to the grand battle, whilst absolutely vital um, and really you know, useful, um, it's not an area of my expertise. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Right, so um, obviously the fighting starts somewhere. Where does it start? Yeah, well, there are two prongs to the attack. And, and I think it's just, can I, can I talk first about the, the, the Soviet defences? Because this is, this, is, this is massive. Um, this is First World War style. This is trenches and trenches and defences. Um, so the Soviets have dug miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of, of, of di- trenches, tank ditches, and they've laid mines like they're going out of fashion. I think we've got something like a thousand anti-tank and fifteen hundred anti-personnel mines per kilometre of the front. Now, if somebody clever can probably add that up. I mean, the front is what one, two, three, four hundred kilometres. So um, that's several million uh, mines who are laid, and the Soviets have got what I would call a very similar layout to the the, the First World War uh, to the German system. Um, each line of trenches has several layers to it and there are several lines of trenches the front line the second line the third line etc i've I've read somewhere that that each soviet soldier dug five meters of trench uh, a a night again i haven't done the 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 maths on that but um it, it certainly makes some sense so you've got the most amazing um defensive system all of those obstacles designed to stop or slow down um, the German Panzer and Panzergrenadier and infantry divisions. And as they slow down or get stuck on those obstacles, the Soviets have got, using their own tanks, using anti-tank guns, using artillery, and using their own air force, uh, will come and uh, attack the Germans. So this is a tough nut to crack. I'm, I'm sorry, that's a really trite statement, but but it, it's cliche. It, it, it really is. And um, oh, there's sort of two approaches are taken. Um, You've got um, uh, Manstein in the south and Kluger in the, the centre, the sort of the, the, the army group commanders. Uh, and Manstein, who's got um, essentially a, a Panzer army, uh, yeah, a Panzer army and an infantry army under command, has quite a bold uh, plan. And it's very much tanks lead and infantry in support of them. Um, in the north, you've got um, Modal. Uh, and Modal's a much more cautious, much more, that's a bit unfair. It, it, it's a more cautious approach. It, it's more of an infantry-led uh, attack. And um, you know, neither neither is right nor wrong, um, but um, it is interesting that you have this difference of approach. So what happens? Um, well, Modal um, 
starts at about 5.30 in the morning with his attack, and, and he puts um, his engineers, pioneers, in to clear the minefield. And they've also got these tiny little um, um, remote-controlled um, mine destruction tanks. They're, they're called Goliaths, and uh, they don't work brilliantly well, but, but they're what? Um, four foot long, a metre and a half, maybe, um, long, half a metre wide, three quarters of a metre wide, full of explosives, and they go off into a, 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 an enemy minefield and are exploded, which sets off the mines. They're horrible, um, horrible things. Yeah, thank, thankfully they don't work well. Thankfully for the Soviets, they don't work that well then. And, and it's interesting, you know, there's lots of chatter nowadays about unmanned ground vehicles being the future of warfare. Um, well, they were tried in 43. So, um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, really. And so once we've got um, those through, this is the north, this is the slightly cautious attack. Um, some assault troops, mainly dismounted infantry, go in under the cover of artillery, naval berths, you know, the, the multi-barrel rocket launcher things and, and assault guns. Um, but they don't get very far in their, their eastern attack. Um, in the centre of the north, it's a bit more mixed um, in terms of infantry and, 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 and armour. And actually, within a shortish period of time, one of the um, divisions has got about five kilometres into the, the Soviet defences, which is, is pretty significant in many ways. Um, but it's just one division out of many who, who are involved. Um, in the south, different attitude. Um, it's the tanks that are in the lead. And um, that includes a couple of battalions of Panthers, that, which haven't been in action before. Um, they haven't really conducted any training en masse. They, they, they've trained as individual crews. And, um, yeah, the Panthers have a pretty poor start. I think some 20 of them don't even get to the um, start line. So um, I should think how many um, Panthers. There's 200 Panthers, I think, in the south. So 10% fail to get to the start line because of breakdowns. Um, and those that do get there um, suffer... You know, uh, half of them managed to sort of suffer mechanical breakdown. So by the end of the fifth of July, forty-three, over a hundred of those Panthers, half of them, this 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 new weapon, uh, and this is its first outing in battle. Um, over over half were out of action. Although some of it was only minor damage, minor damage that, in theory, if the spare parts had been available, they could have been repaired and put back into battle uh, pretty quickly. But the spare parts weren't available. This is the problem with the, the panther and something that the tiger suffers as well. It, it's, it's highly complex, which means mending it, once it's a bit bent, needs specialist training, equipment and parts. You can't just get your welding kit out and your hammer uh, and batter it into in, in, in back into place. So um, mixed um, experiences on the, that, that opening day on the 5th. And, um, gosh, what have we got? Um, I'm just not thinking about sort of casualties. Um, about 13,000 casualties. That's not dead. Um, um, about 13,000 casualties, of which you know, 3,000, 2,500 Germans killed on that opening day. Um, I mentioned quite a lot of tanks, uh, Panthers out of action. Um, in the north, um, uh, Modal has lost something like 18 of his tigers as well. So um, it, it's not a great start. Not going too well. Um, no, what, but then again, arguably, I said the, the Soviet defences are, are are strong, long and deep. So so how else do you overcome it? You know, you, you sort of have to keep you bashing your way through. And... They're trying to find a, a way in so that once they have got through, they can exploit it. Uh, but that's the, the, the challenge they're having. And that goes on on the next day. There's a bit of a breakthrough in the south. Hoth, um, the, the um, army commander, I can never remember the level, so he's an army commander. He, he, he tries to expand his breakthrough and push on to the second line. Um, and actually, by the end of the second day, on the uh, sixth, the, the, the second SS Panzer Corps has has probably advanced about 25 kilometres. Um, the problem is, this, I keep making analogies to the Somme, this is a bit like the 36th Division on the 1st of July, 16 on the Somme. Uh, you know, on, on that day on the Somme, the, the, the 
36 did really quite well. But the people either side of them didn't do so well, so they were exposed uh, and therefore had to withdraw. Um, second SS fans, I don't think they withdraw, but, but, but again, there isn't the success on the flanks, so they are vulnerable. And so, um, and they do get counterattacked. Well, in fact, the whole of the, the, the German force, both north and south, gets counterattack. And, and, and um, the, the army group um, central, um, what's his name? Rocker, Rokos, Rokosovsky. Um, I don't know if you heard of Rokosovsky. He, he gets imprisoned before the war. He, he loses a few teeth and a few um, fingernails in prison, but, but he's um, rehabilitated and ends up as a, an army commander. Um, and, and he is able to counterattack and stop some of that advance in the north. And, and it sort of goes on. I mean, I'm massively oversimplifying. Um, but it sort of goes on like that um, for the next few days. Um, this doesn't mean that the Germans aren't having success. They are having some success. They are wearing down um, the Soviets. Um, I, I think there's a, uh, I think it's the 8th of July, the Luftwaffe attack with their, their, their it's a hench, I can remember the number, with the 30 millimeter cannons. And they, they managed to destroy some 80 tanks from Second Guards Tank Corps uh, destroyed in the south. Um, and so there is attrition happening. The Germans are having success. But I think the, 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 the point is that the Soviets have got more people to throw into the battle. And so it's, it's, it's small advances each way. And having mentioned those figures, Alina, I wonder, is it worth just having a quick diversion into talking about um, the facts and figures in terms of casualties, if we may? Yes, of course. Go for it. I mean, I'm assuming there were quite large casualties. There, there, there were. But I, I just want to talk about the sort of validity of some figures or not. And if you were to ask me, um, you know, how many tanks were involved and, and how many casualties there were there and, and, and so on, I think my simple answer is I don't know. Because it all depends on whose book you read. And, and Kursk, I mean, this is why Kursk is quite interesting. Um, we've all heard about Kursk, and it's the biggest tank battle of the Second World War. Well, was it? Um, uh, might that question. actually just mean. Was it? Pardon? Was yeah, it? Well, well, was it? Was it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I don't think it necessarily was, but it all depends on how you measure it. Because. Kursk is this larger battle. The pints are moving into the salient, but there's this, this famous tank battle at Prokhorovka, which we'll come on to in a minute, um, that is often talked about. And you read after the war, well, basically getting hold of an archive was, was, was pretty challenging. Um, you had you know, two sets of archives. Um, the, 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 the German archives, which... Um, were hard to get into and the Soviet archives which were almost impossible to get into and um, post-war Germany there was this well there, there wasn't much you know they'd lost and so and um, Hitler was dead and so you could blame everything on Hitler and um, perhaps some of the stories were overblown in both directions for the same reasons, the Soviets um, perhaps, no, definitely overplay uh, their successes, and in terms of the numbers destroyed. And so, how many how many tanks are in action? Well, if you look at some of the figures, you end up with more tanks in action than that formation had available to it because it includes all the reinforcements. So that becomes difficult to count. The other thing is, what do we compare? If we compare purely geographically, it sort of cuts one of the, one of the sides. So let's take, if we were to take the, the, the um, ninth, second, fourth, and, and, and Group Kempf armies of the, the, the Germans and count them up, they're not coming up against a, a Soviet formations that subdivide in exactly the same way. So to work out how many tanks from, say, for example, the, the Bryansk front were involved and weren't involved is, is beyond my capability. Now, a number of historians will recently have um, come up with that. I mean, Glantz and House are perhaps the, the two who've come quite close. Um, and the British are starting to get it. Some British, um, Ben Wheatley, for example, have done some really detailed number crunching on Prokhorovka. Um, but the simple answer is I don't know, but I'll come up with some figures at the end. Um, so that was a little diversion. Where, where did we got to? I can't remember. Oh, we got into sort of um, third or fourth day, hadn't we? 
Yeah, because the Soviets at some point counterattack, don't they? Yeah, well, there are there are counterattacks going on at all levels, quite a lot of the time. Um, I think the thing to, to um, the first thing is that that you know eighth, ninth, the Germans are making progress. Having mentioned that the air attacks on the ninth in the south, second SS Panzer Corps um, pushes on to, to to the river, the Pasel River, which is just west of Prokhorovka, and um, it, it, arguably it's making progress. Um, these are not huge distances, but when you consider what they're up against, you know, it's it's the 40Ks in. And then um, what happens? Oh, yeah, the Allies invade Sicily, which causes a problem back in Berlin uh, because um, they kind of knew it was coming and they know that Sicily will lead to an invasion of Italy uh, and so on. Um, but there's now a two fronts again where um, the Germans have to make a decision. Which of their fronts are, are they going to go and reinforce? And um, that causes a pause. And um, the pause is predominantly in the north, but in the south, the, the second SS Panzer Corps keeps going and pushes on towards Prokhorovka. And um, Manstein in the south, who owns Hoth, wants to keep going. Um, whereas in the north, um, things have settled down. And that pushes us on to Prokhorovka, which in some people's minds is the the totemic tank battle of the Second World War, which is often referred to as the Battle of Kursk, where um, the Soviets destroyed German armour in their thousands. Or not. Did they? No. Okay. Um. No. No, they didn't. Um, Prokhorovka. I don't, I don't know. Had, had, had you heard of Prokhorovka before as a as a as a separate part of Kursk? Never. Okay. I mean, that in itself is, is isn't a bad thing. Um, Prokhorovka is. I can't remember. Is it the thirteenth, fourteenth? I should know that off the top of my head. Really, shouldn't I? Um, it has achieved in certain areas mythical status, and some people say that this was the biggest tank battle. Um, it's defined, who was it, I think a, a, house, a single titanic struggle. No, it's not. It's a series of um, confusing to me, the historian, looking at it, and I think confused to those fighting it, series of sort of meeting engagements, because a lot of the time both armies, both sides are on the move, and they're literally bumping into each other. Um, there's some hasty attacks that go on, some counterattacks, and um, it's not coordinated in a way that the initial um, large-scale uh, attacks of, of, of Curse, the invasion, was coordinated. So you get these small actions, and, and the famous, famous um, tank battle of Prokhorovka um, is supposed to have the 12th of July. Did I say 13th? I do apologise. Um, it's supposed to have destroyed let's say, hundreds of um, German tanks. Well, um, I, I can't, with any certainty, and I apologise to Ben Wheatley for, for saying this, say whether he is right or not. But on one side, you have this legend, Soviet destroyed lots of hundreds of German tanks, Then Ben Wheatley is saying that, that actually only five German tanks were destroyed or, or something like that. Well, the, the reality is somewhere in the middle, but it's in the lower numbers in the middle. And um, there are books published, and I've read them, that, that, that you know, Germans lost hundreds. Um, and so, well, I tell you, did he lose hundreds? And the guards tank army of the Soviets, they lost nearly 200. Um, so I don't know. I don't know exactly in that battle. But overall, I can make a stab at it. Um, overall, for Kursk, Germans lost three, four. 500 tanks and armoured vehicles. That's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot, but but, but they're starting big. Um, And the um, Soviets, what do they lose? Well, two, three, maybe four times as many. Um, And that's a heck of a lot. So um, it's 
it's difficult to say, but it, it also doesn't necessarily mean anything. Again, we're back to that top trumps we talked about earlier, Alina, with, with um, looking at the tanks, you know, on, 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 on the top trump basis, Tiger probably the best. And so if you look at uh, Germans, Germans lost significantly fewer tanks than the Soviets, well, it must have been a German victory. Well, um, no, because um, Germans have reduced their combat effectiveness significantly. Um, some 30 divisions are now really out of about 70, so just under half are combat ineffective. Um, the Soviets lost significantly more, but they've still got even more people to throw into the battle. And so it's one of those um, battles where it's a bit like Jutland. I keep going back to the First World War. That's probably because my roots in military history are in the First World War. I, I compare it to Jutland. Um, at Jutland, the, the Germans suffered fewer casualties and ships destroyed than the British. Yet the German Navy was essentially beaten at Jutland. Um, I would argue that, that the significant similarities, the German losses were much lower than, than the Soviet losses at Kursk. But um, I don't think the Germans won in any way, shape or form. The Soviets didn't necessarily win, but um, it's a turning point. And from then on, whilst successes are localised, I mean, localised covers quite a large area, um, it, it's all downhill for the Germans, I would say. Does not sound good at all. This is, this is pretty much the downfall, isn't it? Well, I, I think so. I mean, again, um, it, it, it is, I mean... The Germans, sorry, you asked about the Soviet counterattack. The Soviets had planned this large counterattack to the north of the Kursk salient. And that is, um, you know, into um, from their own uh, salient. Uh, and, and that takes place. Uh, and so um, Kutsov, 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 Kutsov. Yeah, Kutsov, Kutsov. I can't believe it's really called that. <laughs> I've only just realized that, Alina. It's Kutsov. But I suppose it could be Kutsov. Um I, I shouldn't joke about the names of offensives. And and, um, and that starts on the, the 12th of July. So whilst this, this mythical um, battle of Prokhorovka is going on, um, the, the, the Soviet counteroffensive in the north um, starts. And um, and so, yes, the combination of all of that is, is the start of the end, uh, I think it's fair to say. And then from you know, December 43 onwards, um, the Soviets are, are on the um, offensive, and by you know by December, um, they they crossed the Dnieper in the south, and 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 whilst they've still got a way to go in sort of Belarus, they're not into Minsk. Um, and that takes some time. They they they've they've made quite they've gained quite a lot of um, ground, and so yeah, it, it is a start point, I think, of the the turnaround. So, what do you think that the two sides learnt from this? Yeah, um, I suppose the Germans learnt that 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 that, that they 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 probably weren't going to win. Um, I think they learnt, although they already knew, that their decision-making process of the German high command uh, was stifled uh, from the top. And whilst they had some sound minds and and and, and the likes of Guderian and others come in there, um, they were interfered with too much. And uh, I think they learnt that. And I think they learnt the hard way that that. Perhaps um, Blitzkrieg, certainly as a sort of strategic act, was was not working for them anymore. That doesn't mean it wasn't able to work in the future. What did the, the, the Soviets learn? Well, they learned that their combined arms techniques that, that they perhaps used first at Kursk, something that the Germans had used all the way back in 1940, um, when they invaded the, the Low Countries in northern France, and, and, and what the Brits were still trying to learn, and didn't quite get right in in forty four, were getting right better in forty five. The, the Soviets were learning that, and they applied it. They they they, they hadn't refined it as a result of of, of Kursk, um, but they um, they 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 worked out the best way to do it to bring the infantry together with. Um, infantry support tanks to self-propelled guns and so on. And then when you've got a hole through to exploit through with, with faster moving armor. And so um, I think the Soviets come away certainly a few months after so going to 40, uh, 44, having learned some significant lessons 
from the Germans and, and, and from themselves that I think any modern army would understand as being valid today about combined arms warfare. Gareth, thank you so much for joining us today. That was absolutely fantastic. My pleasure. Well, thank you for inviting me, Alina. I love it. I think we need to get you back to come and talk about your favourite tank. Oh, okay. I'd be very happy to do that. I'll make sure we put that into the diary. Tune in tomorrow because we will be joined by Manuela del Borgo. This is brilliant. She came to talk to us all about Thucydides uh, and it was absolutely fascinating. It's a really good talk, so don't miss out on that one. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join us on either of those platforms uh, marcus is currently working on some benefits for you so uh, there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms we're revamping ourselves on both of them so don't forget to go in you can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up history hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.